welcome to the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I'm Amber Mercado, the School and Library Marketing Coordinator, and I have the honor of speaking with the brilliant Lakin Zaya Kemp, whom you may know from her Pura Belpre honor title, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet. We're discussing her sophomore novel, Heartbreak Symphony, another YA romance that has two starred reviews so far from School Library Journal and Booklist. To quote SLJ's review, this story will be resounding in readers' hearts long after they've turned the last page. Oh, and I know it stayed with me. We also have a special treat this episode with an excerpt from the audiobook at the end of the episode, so make sure to stick around to hear that as well. So here I am with Lake and Zaya Kemp. Um, it's great having you here, Lakin. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing me back. So how are you today? I'm doing well. Um, I know we're going to end up in this conversation talking a little bit about my middle grade debut, which comes out in September. And that's actually what I'm working on right now is the sequel to that. So it's a little bit of a hectic week, a little bit of a stressful week, um, but I'm excited to get this deadline done. Yeah, that will be a big relief off your back. You're actually... Um, going all over the place you're going to be a multi-level author very soon you're not going to be just in YA although we're here to talk about your other YA book but that's very exciting yeah I'm super excited to be writing across age categories with my middle grade and then my picture book that comes out in February Um, I think I'll have a total of three books coming out next year my third YA novel which like you said we're not here to talk about that one today I'm sure I'll be back to talk about that one soon um and then the sequel to the middle grade that comes out in September and then another picture book so yeah I'm excited to be moving into these new spaces and just really being able to interact with kids of all ages so if you're into Lakin after this podcast there will be plenty of her for all young readers just wait (laughs) so yes uh, plenty so that readers can hopefully grow with me and as they get older you know there will be books by me for for them at every stage of life like we said we're here to talk about your sophomore novel heartbreak symphony can you tell readers a little bit about that it's a standalone it's not a sequel to somewhere between bitter and sweet It is a standalone, but I would describe it as a companion novel because it does take place in the same world as Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet. In fact, it takes place in the same neighborhood. This time, though, we follow Aaron and Mia, who are both aspiring musicians, both um, dealing with terrible stage fright, and both uh, dealing with the tragic loss of a parent. And so over the course of the story, they connect on both fronts. They connect through their love of music and how they use that through the grieving process. And they also connect through both having experienced such an intense loss at a really young age. Um, But it's another dual point of view contemporary romance. Um, And like I said, there there will be plenty of secondary characters that you might recognize. I was wondering since you did place them in the same neighborhood and they were so similar in the same town. What prompted you to write a book with new characters instead of just returning to Penn and Sander? So I tend to write pretty large casts, especially pretty large secondary casts uh, with somewhere between bitter and sweet. I feel like the community and the neighborhood itself was sort of its own character. 
And there were just so many secondary characters in the book who I loved and just felt were deserving of having their stories continued or having their, you know, more of a spotlight on them in general. And so Aaron, the main character in Heartbreak Symphony, he's actually one of the restaurant workers. We don't see him much. He and his twin brother are mentioned briefly. Um, And in earlier versions of Somewhere, there were more scenes with him and a little bit more depth to his character. I knew that he was an aspiring musician. And so I just started to kind of like tug on that thread and realized I really wanted to um, explore his, his life and his passions a little bit more. And so he was sort of the impetus for Heartbreak Symphony and the character that came to me first. But there, there are actually lots of secondary characters that I um, have in mind for their own standalones, their own companion novels to continue in this um, same neighborhood, in the same world. We'll see if I have enough time to write them all, um, but I would love to give every single one of those characters, especially every single one of the restaurant employees, their their own story. <laughs> I love that. I always was the one rooting for secondary characters growing up. I was like, that's it. They're my favorite. And for them to get their own story and book would have like made my day as a teen. <laughs> So it's great that you, you know, chose to explore them and that you're giving them that time in the spotlight. <laughs> As you mentioned, this book is another dual point of view. In this one, it's Mia and Aaron. It, do you find one too easier to write over the other? And what do you believe are the benefits of a dual point of view novel? So I've been writing dual point of view narratives for a long time. I think it works particularly well for romance and it's just a lot of fun. I think for both me as a writer and for readers as well, being in both characters' heads as they're falling in love. I also just really enjoy being able to create and develop two protagonists for each book instead of just one. With Penn, I got to write about a young woman discovering her own power and independence. And with Mia, she's having a much different experience in that she's sort of desperately trying to hold on to the family that she has left. With Xander, he's grappling with his own definition of family and searching for a place to belong. And with Aaron, he had a home, he had an anchor, which was his mother. And now that she's gone, he's having to come to terms with the fact that sometimes you have to wipe your own tears and that the family you have isn't always the family that you need. And yet there's always room for healing and there's always room for people to change and to grow. I think what differentiates the dual point of view or differentiates Heartbreak Symphony and Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet in terms of difficulty um, wasn't necessarily the dual point of view or like the narration or the character development, but was probably the aspect of magical realism. The male protagonist, Aaron, his grief manifests itself as this giant robot that is the stage persona of his favorite musician. And so writing something that still felt contemporary, that obviously still took place in the same world and the same neighborhood as Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet while also using the robot as a device and therefore bending the genre a little bit, that was tough to get right. But I just knew that I didn't really want to tackle the grief in the story in a traditional way. Using magical realism felt like a safer vehicle through which teenagers could connect to, understand, and process Aaron's grief as well as their own. Teens today have experienced and continue to experience so much trauma 
so many of them have lost loved ones during this pandemic. But knowing that a lot of those feelings are still very raw and, you know, kids are continuing to experience loss in big and small ways, I really wanted that part of Aaron's journey to feel accessible rather than overwhelming. And so this robot that follows him around and basically roasts him the entire time, it brings a little bit of comedic relief. It gives Aaron more of a physical, tangible adversary to overcome. And it also represents the connection young people in particular have to artists and performers and public figures and how in such a big and scary world, their work can feel like lifelines. And sometimes a song that someone else wrote can perfectly encapsulate your feelings and experiences in a way that you um, never would have been able to articulate on your own. Um, that reminded me of a, pa a part I was reading it towards the beginning when Aaron is listening to music on his headphones and he's able to control basically um, his grief. And you wrote, because I'm when I'm the one controlling what's coming through those speakers, I can change my whole mood with one swipe of the play button. I can remember her when I want and I can forget it all too. And that really resonated with me because I lost my father when I was a teen. And I remember doing the same thing as Aaron, where I would just like only skip songs or play songs when I wanted to feel a certain way. Certain songs trigger me to think of him and I would be like, nope, I don't want to feel that right now. Or I'm, I'm comfortable processing this grief this way. So I felt that that was very relatable to me. And I'm sure many other teens, like you said, during pandemic who are processing their grief. And I just, I felt that was very um, realistic. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the same experience. My dad passed away when I was a teenager and, you know, music, movies, like different kinds of storytelling across like different modalities I would throw myself into. And sort of like you were saying, it's sort of like working a water faucet, you know, in terms of allowing how much of that grief, how much of that emotion you want to let through at any given time. And so that's one of the coping mechanisms that Aaron happens to use in the book. Um, and of course, over the course of the story, like he learns other ways to cope. But I, you know, I was also a teacher, like a high school ESL teacher. And I remember how my kids had their headphones in all day, every day, and were constantly living their life to a soundtrack. And so I just really wanted to capture that in all the ways that it you know, it helps young people to get through really difficult times. Yeah, and it's a aspect of control when you feel hopeless and you can't do anything. It's like a one part you can control as right. well. And as we're on the subject of music, I'm always really impressed when an author can like capture music and that deep love and emotion behind the sounds and put it on the page. Was it difficult for you to write? And I was always looking up... Um, the different songs you referenced while I was reading. And it was just so enjoyable to have that in the background. It just made the read deeper for me as well. Yeah, so there's a lot of songs referenced in the book and obviously you can, like readers can take the time to Google them or look them up on Spotify. But um, there's also a playlist on thenovel.com which people can just search for um, under Heartbreak Symphony. And I put that together with, 
there's songs that are referenced in the book and then also additional songs that I think are just a good reflection of sort of the vibes and the aesthetic of the book. When it comes to writing about music and like describing sound, I feel like I'm naturally a very rhythmic writer and there's often musicality to my prose even when I'm not writing about music. When I'm revising, what I'm paying attention to most is how the sentences sound. Am I getting that faint sort of drum beat that will propel the reader forward? Readers might notice that I use a lot of anaphora and sentence fragments, and it's all for the purpose of creating that specific rhythm that I'm looking for. And I know when I found it, just when it feels right. So using that same sense to describe the way that music sounds and the way that music feels and more specifically how it sounds and how it feels with different experiences and under different circumstances, it came pretty naturally to me, but I did find myself, you know, going over those sections quite a bit just to be sure, um, because I really did want it to feel like the reader was listening to their favorite album. Like I wanted to capture that experience of being moved by a particular melody and just pay homage to all of the ways that music nourishes us. That's really fascinating how even your writing has that different um, musicality to it, as you said. That's great. And while we're talking about music, and you mentioned it when we were just speaking about grief too, um, while music plays a really big part in the book, there's also art and poetry that are used as different coping mechanisms for other characters like Nina and Mia's brother as well. Right. So Mia's brother is a poet who's also trying to get over his own stage fright. Um, and then Nina is a secondary character who's a muralist who sort of is sort of like an artist activist um, in their community. For me, this book is really sort of like a love letter to artists and how we use art and how, you know, at the same time, art sustains us and how it's this very symbiotic relationship. Both Aaron and Mia turn to music in their darkest moments. It's how they recenter, it's how they process things, it's how they connect with each other. And it's that part, the way that music allows us to connect with others that ultimately puts them on the path towards healing. So they're on these individual journeys in which music is helping them explore and express all of these really difficult emotions. And simultaneously, the community is finding solace in music and different art forms too, which all sort of culminates in a protest that takes place in the last few chapters of the book. And we see both Aaron and Mia coming to the realization that all of the comfort and healing music has brought them personally is really a gift that's meant to be shared. And so we see the community using music to bolster and uplift one another. And it's all just a really beautiful metaphor for the fact that we all have gifts that can be used to uplift our communities and that the key to finding purpose is not keeping those things to ourselves. Yeah, it's just absolutely beautiful when everyone can come together and share their skills and also be appreciated by others and learn to love themselves and their skills. As you said, me as an activist and the overall book has a lot of themes of activisms and at the heart of the book, there is the whole community rallying against ICE and the whole community is um, affected when Mr. V, the bus driver, is taken from them by ICE. 
and you highlight the trouble that the government and police brutality and ICE brings to Latinx communities. Um, yeah. So in somewhere between bitter and sweet, I, I touched on topics like gentrification and police brutality. But as things were sort of escalating in the real world, I decided that I wanted to be more explicit about these issues in Heartbreak Symphony. Heartbreak Symphony is a very raw book. Obviously, both Aaron and me are grieving the loss of a parent. That's one of the things that connects them. But there were also all of these other kinds of grief that I wanted to explore. And in order to be able to show the community's collective healing, which was also a goal, you know, in that culminating scene that I referenced earlier, I had to also show the community's collective grief. So alongside Aaron and Mia's own personal journeys, the community is also experiencing this intense grief and loss as they're being targeted by ICE and their friends and family and neighbors are being deported. And then, you know, here we have these two teenagers with undocumented family members who, on top of everything else that they're dealing with emotionally, now have to carry the weight of that worry that they're going to lose another person that they love. With that, have you heard from any of your readers about how these types of serious themes have impacted them? What kind of things have you heard back in response to these types of messages? Honestly, what I mostly hear from readers, especially Latina readers, is how much they appreciate the mental health representation in my books. But um, obviously one of the reasons that so many of us have mental health issues is because of a lot of generational and collective trauma that we've experienced due to these systems of oppression. And so it's all sort of connected in that way. Um, so a lot of the messages that I get are just people, you know, being grateful for the representation, talking about how it's not often that they see that specific kind of representation. Mental health issues are still very stigmatized in the Latina community, like they are in so many communities. And so it's still sort of a remarkable thing to see a Latina character, not just dealing with it, but naming it and managing it and asking for help. In Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, Penn takes medication to manage her anxiety and depression. And in Heartbreak Symphony, you know, Aaron seeks out the help of a therapist. And while there are often barriers to these kinds of treatment methods and they're not always accessible to everyone, I still think it's important to show Latina characters who believe that their mental health is worthy of being cared for, because that's often the first step in getting the help you need, just acknowledging that you deserve it. Yeah, so often I remember my cousins just being labeled as like a crazy cousin and not actually addressing anything that was actually going on or any mental health struggle that was probably the cause or why that was happening. Mm -hmm. So it's great we're having you know, talking about these problems and addressing how you can get help. Yeah. And even, you know, in Heartbreak Symphony, there's, in the beginning of the story, Aaron is using the word crazy. He is using sort of problematic language to describe his own mental health struggles. And through working with the therapist that he, you know, that he meets, he learns 
why words are so powerful, why it's important to be specific about how you talk about yourself, how you should be respectful when you talk about yourself and, you know, just approach those kinds of issues with as much care and compassion as possible. And that's also something really important to model um, because, yeah, we, we come from families who sometimes use that language and just in an effort to like laugh it off whatever someone is dealing with. Um, and so that was important for me to address in the story as well. What was one of the most surprising things you learned in creating either of your books? Writing Heartbreak Symphony was extremely difficult to date. It's probably been the most difficult project that I've ever worked on. But a big part of that was the fact that I was writing it at the height of the pandemic and, you know, in the spring and summer of 2022. And I was basically fast drafting, like this intensely emotional project that was inspired quite a bit by my own life and my experiences of losing my father to cancer when I was a teen. And as I'm diving back into my own personal grief, I'm also surrounded by it, you know, by ambulance sirens and empty streets and a death toll that just felt so overwhelming and unimaginable. And while I was writing about these characters who were worried about losing even more loved ones and experiencing that kind of grief all over again, I was also terrified, like so many of us were, of, you know, family members and friends getting sick and being hospitalized and potentially passing away. So it was a really intense emotional experience to be working on this book against the backdrop of the pandemic and yet somehow I did it like somehow I got it done and that's probably the thing that surprised me the most just how I was still able to create and connect to that artistic part of myself even in the midst of so much chaos yeah that's really strong emotions and you really channeled it into your writing it can tell really powerful. Yeah, it definitely Very felt um, like an exorcism of sorts, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lakin, um, Heartbreak Symphony is out now. Um, where can readers find you and what's the next for you? Yeah, so I'm at Lakin Zaya Kemp on all social media platforms. Um, you can find me at at lickensaykemp.com. That's my website. I have a newsletter that you can sign up for there that I send out monthly. Um, and what's next is the middle grade that I referenced earlier. So Mega Morales and the Legend of La Lechusa. It comes out on, in September. And I'm super excited about this book. It's my very first middle grade novel and it's in a different genre. It's fantasy and just so fun and spooky and full of all the things that I loved reading about when I was in that age group. Fantasy is really the genre that I fell in love with first when I was a kid and just starting to kind of read independently and be able to choose my own books from the library. I was a witch for Halloween for like seven years in a row because I just so desperately <laughs> wanted magic to be real. And so I feel like this was my chance to make something magical and also to, as I do with all of my books, to safeguard a piece of my childhood and sort of stow away those memories for safekeeping. The book is very much inspired by the summers that I would spend in my grandparents' house where 
I had nothing to keep me entertained but my own imagination. And Omega's experience in her small Texas town is similar. She's got two best friends, her cousin Carlitos and a ghost named Clow. And they're constantly getting into trouble. They they have good intentions. I mean, mostly like they're just trying to protect their town from monsters. <laughs> but they get a little carried away as kids sometimes do and end up following their curiosity to some very dangerous places. Um, and this first book follows them as they unravel the mystery of La Lechusa, who is a witch from Mexican and Chicano folklore with the ability to transform herself into an owl and who my great-grandmother claimed to have seen when she was still alive. So these are very much living myths in our community, and it was really exciting to be able to put my own twist on her origin story. There's also a sequel, the first draft of which um, is due very soon, <laughs> and that book will pick up right where the first one left off, and we'll explore another myth and monster from Mexican and Chicano folklore. Awesome. I can't wait to read that second draft because I loved the first one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, everyone. Omega comes out September 27, 2022. And Heartbreak Sympathy is available now. You can go get it. Go read it. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yes, please. Thanks. <laughs> Well, Lakin, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for all of your time and your wonderful insights. Thank you for your amazing characters and your fantastic writing. And we will let you go continue writing that second draft. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Making music is like summoning a ghost. Play the right melody, strike the right chords, and people remember the past with their whole bodies. What it felt like to fall in love for the first time. What it felt like to have that heart you never knew could be so big, broken. The right song sinks its teeth in us and makes us feel in places we thought were numb. The right song hangs us high above the clouds and makes us dream. My mother's favorite song was The Book of Love by Peter Gabriel. And when life gets quiet, when life gets loud, I close my eyes and sometimes I can hear the strings washed in synthesizer. I can feel the rise and fall of the notes in my chest. I can feel her unfurling my clenched fists and wrapping her arms around me. I feel things that I can't unlock otherwise. It's been eight months since she died, and the only thing that makes life bearable is being the one to turn the key. To find the song that finally reaches the person who's been hiding in the corner of the dance hall all night. To watch it slide over their body and wrench them onto their feet. Sometimes it's just a toe tap. A jiggle of the knee. Sometimes a tear falls. Sometimes it's a smile so small you can barely see it. And it's those moments that keep me coming back to these grimy dance halls and smelly gymnasiums. DJing every family reunion and quinceañera that comes my way. Because it's better than being home on the weekends with my dad and my brother, who have stuffed their grief so down deep that it's like we live on two separate planets. One where mom is a bittersweet memory, and the other where she never existed at all. Because when I'm the one controlling what's coming through those speakers, 
I can change my whole mood with one swipe of the play button. I can remember her when I want. I can forget it all, too. The seven-foot robot standing next to me shrugs. Or maybe you're the only DJ, and I use that term loosely, ending up in smelly gymnasiums and dimly lit refectories because you're also the only one without a flashy pseudonym and an oversized headpiece with an ironic costume to match. The robot frowns. You need some style, kid. At first glance, he looks like one of the party decorations, or maybe even tonight's second act. What kid doesn't want a giant walking, talking robot leading everyone into La Macarena? But he's not, and the only one glancing in his direction is me, because I'm the only one that can actually see him. I wish I knew what he is. All I know is, he's been following me around since the funeral. A ghost as invisible as I am when I'm roaming the halls of Montevista High School. All my sadness wrapped up in shiny tinfoil and shaped like an oversized child's toy. He keeps playing games with me like one. His latest, some deranged version of cat and mouse with my sanity being the mouse. But just because he's probably not real doesn't mean he's wrong. Maybe I wouldn't still be here half an hour after the party was supposed to have ended, if I had a flashier setup or a larger-than-life persona. Maybe then I wouldn't be so invisible. But being invisible has its perks. For one, none of the drunk partygoers have attempted to make small talk with me. I'd definitely call that a win. I'll admit, the robot says. That is pretty impressive considering some of these people have been drinking for three hours straight. Well, at least all the white people who showed up at four because that's what the invitation said. Some of them were already buzzed by the time the family finally arrived. But is it even una fiesta real if the birthday boy doesn't arrive late to his own party? He showed up bouncing in a souped-up muscle car with hissing hydraulics. The kid should have been wearing a helmet but that would have messed up his perfectly gelled hair. The robot scoffs. If these people wanted to cumbia the night away, they shouldn't have booked the church during peak funeral season. I didn't know funerals had a season. Everything has a season. It's not just about the wake, I think. I've got shit to do, too. Mm-hmm. Sure you do.